All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, last week we began our brand new series going verse by verse uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're calling this first section of the book, The Church Undivided. The Church Undivided. And we're going to find through these first few chapters that there are many things that were actually threatening to divide the church in Corinth. But as the Apostle Paul writes this letter, he's instructing them. And by extension, of course, he's also instructing us as to how to be a church that is undivided in the things that truly matter the most. And what we learn from our passage here today in 1 Corinthians 1 is simply this, a church undivided will cling to the hope that the gospel gives us. A church undivided will cling to the hope that the gospel gives us. Now, uh, there are some intentionally chosen words within that sentence. A church undivided will cling to the hope that the gospel gives us. Now, uh, we all know this to be true, uh, not just in church, but we know this to be true in life as well, that it's really, really easy for us to get distracted by a bunch of different things. Our culture is a culture of constant interruptions. We have one device that beeps, and then we have another device that dings, and we have another device that rattles, and before long, like, we're all over the place just trying to keep up with all of these distractions, and, and then before we even know it, it takes like 45 minutes for us to re-engage in the thing that we first sat down to do. And the reality is, if we're not careful, that can happen within the life of the church as well. It's easy for us to get distracted by the things that are good, and in the process, forget the things that matter the most. And like, there's times where my inbox piles up with emails about the latest church trends. And, and if you want your church to grow, then you should do this. And if you want your church to grow, then you need that program or you need this technology. And that's what's going to make it grow. And some of those things can be good. Like some of them can be very good and they can actually be very helpful. But the question that we need to keep coming back to over and over again is simply this. When it comes to the church, being the church, what is it exactly that God promises to bless? And when it comes to us being followers of Jesus, what is it exactly that God promises to pour out his favor upon us if we will do these things? And, and that question, really, when you think about it, it becomes all the more significant as we try to put ourselves into the sandals of this Corinthian church. Keep in mind that this was a church who was trying to understand what it means for them to honor God in a culture that had no intention of honoring God. And so when the cultural winds blow hard against what the church is called to be, the church will hold fast. The church will cling to the hope that the gospel gives us. Followers of Jesus will cling. We will, uh, we will cling to the hope that the gospel gives us. And so what we're about to see in this passage here is that the reality of that truth, that, that the church clings to the hope that the gospel gives us, that reality does not revolve around one particular person in the church. It doesn't revolve around a certain ministry within the church to do that. It doesn't even revolve necessarily only around the leaders of the church to do that. In fact, we know that the church consists of the people who have been called out of the world by God. We have been called out of the world as followers of Jesus Christ. We have been set apart by God to be his people so that when the people of the church cling to the hope of the gospel, and, and in our case as this church, when, when about 500 of us cling to the hope of the gospel as we gather together on a weekend and as we gather together throughout the week in different places, different times for different things, that all of us together clinging to the hope of the gospel within our life, that's going to change some things. 
That's going to do some things that, that makes the culture around us, makes the world around us sit up and take notice of what's happening. And that, friends, really is what our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is going to teach us today. That for all of the things, listen, for all the things that were going wrong in the Corinthian church, and there were a lot of things that were going wrong in that church, Paul says that there were also some things that were going really right And there's a foundation that exists that for all the stuff that they could look around and see that was going wrong, there was a foundation there on which there were some things that were going really, really right. And so even before Paul launches into all that's wrong and needs to change, he begins by affirming what is right. Good lesson for us in that too, isn't it? That it's easy for us to point out the things that we don't like, whether that's in a marriage It's in a relationship, it's in a friendship, or even if it's in a church. We all need to be better at the things that are legitimately wrong. But but at the same time, it takes grace, and it takes effort, and it takes humility, and it takes character to say, even though I see some things that may be wrong, here are some things that I see that are really right. And I thank God for that. And that's actually what Paul is about to do right here in 1 Corinthians 1. You can see this right in your own copy of God's Word. So follow along as I begin reading chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to show you from this passage today four ways that the hope of the gospel impacts the life of the church. Keep in mind, Paul's writing this letter to the church. So how does the The church. How does this impact the people who make up the church? So four ways that the hope of the gospel impacts the life of the church. Here's the first. You can jot this down. We will be Jesus-saturated. So four ways that the hope of the gospel impacts the life of the church. When when the gospel is impacting us, then we will be a people who are Jesus-saturated. And we know that this isn't just where it begins. This really is what it's all about. The church and everything that the church is for is about Jesus. In fact, if you read through the first 10 verses of chapter 1, something that you should notice is that Jesus is referred to in every single verse. Paul refers to Jesus 12 times in the first 10 verses of this letter because there's no mistaking that the reason that they are there, the reason that they exist as a church is because of Jesus and everything that Jesus has done for them. And the reason that we are here, the reason that we exist as a church is because of Jesus and everything that Jesus has done for us. So notice here what Paul's doing at the very beginning. He's saying that despite all of the things that are threatening to pull you apart on some level as a church, the only thing that will hold you together and the only thing that will keep you together is if you're willing to be a people who collectively are saturated in the person and the work of Jesus on your behalf. So he says in verse 4 that it actually starts with a right understanding of what Jesus has done for you. Look again at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. The grace of God. 
God has shown you undeserved favor. God has shown us unmerited kindness in giving us Jesus. That's the grace of God toward us, that that in Jesus we have a Savior who knew no sin, and yet he took all of our sin upon himself as the perfect sacrifice before a holy God. He takes God's rightful judgment against our sin so that when we believe that Jesus is the only one who can make us right with God, that there is no other way to God, there is no other way for us to save ourselves, when we believe in Jesus in repentance and faith, then we are made right with the God who made us. That is grace. That is God's grace upon your life. And and it's a gift that we don't deserve, and yet it's a gift that God freely gives. That's the grace of God upon you grace of God upon me. And, and really, if there's anyone who knew the extent of God's grace upon their life, it was Paul, right? Like, you remember how he describes himself later in the New Testament? First Timothy, he describes himself as the chief of sinners, persecutor of Christians, whose life then is radically transformed by this very grace from God. And so, look at what Paul says here in verse four. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Like he's saying, I'm so thankful to my God, to my God. He's my God who has shown me so much grace and so much mercy that has changed my life. And he's done the same thing for you. He's your God. Your God is my God. Our God has done this. And he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Every time that you come to my mind, Paul says, I'm just thanking God for the saving work that he has done within your life. I'm so thankful for the grace that has been given to you by God because of Jesus. Like, loved ones, this is so important for us to see here. Like, this was a problematic church where serious changes were on the horizon. But, but here's the thing. When you have a thankfulness for the profound grace of God that has been shown to you, then that changes the way that you see your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Like when you realize that that this transforming grace has been given to you by God in Christ and were it not for that grace, that you would be sinking ever deeper into the dark pit of your own problems. And when you see the grace of God like that within your own life, then you start to see the people around you, you start to see the church that you're a part of in a different light. The Bible says that the place where all of that begins is when we are a church, when we are a people who exalts the person and the work of Jesus among us. Like when we lift up, when we emphasize repeatedly over and over again that this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus has done for us. In fact, he gets really specific in verse five about the kind of work that Christ is doing as a result of that grace. Look at verse five. That in every way, he says, you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So notice this. When God's grace changed your life, it impacted you. He says here, in every way. So God's grace is poured out upon your life. You are saved in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, as God's grace showers down upon you, it has changed you. It has impacted you, he says here, in every way. In every way, you are enriched in Christ. In other words, because God's grace has changed you, you have been made rich, spiritually rich, in ways that you never before could have conceived. Like, think of it like this. It's not like uh, when God's grace was poured out upon your life and, and you got saved in Jesus Christ, it's not like in that moment you just became like a slightly better version of your former self. 
It's not like you got the recent update, like you're you 2.0. That's not what he's going after here. He says, when you were enriched, like think of it like this, like you go onto your banking website and, and you open up your account and, and you look at your account and you know the numbers that are supposed to be there and, and because they've been there and, and yet now when you're saved in Jesus Christ and the grace of God has been poured out upon your life, it's like you're going into that account and you're looking at those numbers and those same numbers are still there but now it's like there's more zeros behind those numbers than you ever could have imagined. Like that you didn't even know were possible. Why? Because you have been enriched. You have been given so much, spiritually speaking, by the grace of God upon your life. And he mentions two ways here in verse 5. He says, you have been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Speech and knowledge. Two of the most prized gifts within the Corinthian church, and yet also two of the most abused gifts in the Corinthian church. We're going to get to that later in our series, but for now, he's simply saying this, that the life-changing work of Christ within your life has given you something to say. Like, like see this, the grace of God is poured out upon your life. You are enriched in all speech, and when the grace of God is poured out on you, is poured out into you, In that moment, you have been given something to say by God. He's also saying the life-changing work of Christ in your life has shown you things that you did not previously know. Why? Because you have been enriched. You have been enriched in all knowledge. So think about this right now. As we're sitting here together in this room, and as we look around, all of us, every person in here right now who is saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, God's grace is poured out upon you. You have been enriched in all speech and in all knowledge. That means that as the recipients of God's grace upon us, we are sitting here right now, and we know more about the beauty and the glory of God today because of Jesus. Like we're sitting here right now, we know the plan of salvation today because of Jesus. We know the assurance of sins forgiven and hope secured today because of Jesus. We know that we have hope to offer other people today because of Jesus. We know the pathway to a life that God promises to bless because of Jesus. Like think about this, God's grace poured out upon you and every part of your speech Every part of your thinking, every part of the way that you see and you process and you understand this life enriched in Jesus Christ, transformed by his all-consuming work. So think about it. The the next time that uh, you sit down across a table from a friend who's asking you what to do because they don't know what to do, like in that moment, God has given you something to say. He has filled you with something to give to them. Even if you don't know the specific answer to their specific problem, he has filled you with the gospel. He has filled you with grace and and he has filled you with the ability to sit across that table, no matter what the circumstance may be, and tell them that their hope is Jesus. Next time you're maybe sitting at the bedside of someone that you love who is slipping from this life and into eternity, you think about the hardest moments of our lives, the hardest things that we go through through the course of our life, like even in a moment like that, God has given you something to say. He's given you the ability to look to that person and remind them, even in their final breath, that their hope is Jesus. Why? Because you have been enriched in all speech and in all knowledge. 
because the grace of God has been poured out upon you. Let's, let's let this be a good reminder for us too about how we use social media, how we use email, even just generally how we speak with one another. No matter what the context might be, God has given us something to say. Like he's enriched us with all speech and all knowledge and, and it kind of begs the question of us at this particular point, like, like are we speaking like we have been enriched or are we speaking like we're bankrupt? Like, am I speaking to my family? Am I speaking to my coworkers? Am I speaking to my neighbors? Am I thinking with knowledge about this life in a way that my greatest concern is to reflect the life of Jesus lived through me? Like, again, as a church even, God has given us something to say. He's given us something to cling to. And God has put knowledge within us to think about life and to think about relationships with one another in the ways that he has designed for it to happen. And so if we want to be a people that God blesses, if we want to be a church that God blesses, then we must be a church that is unapologetically all about Jesus all the time. That's one of the things I love about this church, that we love Jesus and we're not ashamed that we love Jesus. We want to worship Jesus, we want to talk about Jesus, we want to live for Jesus. So just think about What happens when we're all committed, like every one of us on whom the grace of God has been poured out? Just think of what happens when when we live with a commitment to be all about Jesus all the time. It results in love. It results in grace. It results in humility and gentleness and joy and kindness and goodness. It results in peace. It results in a church undivided. And a church undivided is a church that is saturated in Jesus. That's number one. Here's priority number two. Four ways that the gospel impacts the life of the church. Number two, we will be gospel-centered. So we're Jesus-saturated, we're gospel-centered. Those two go hand in hand. Notice verse six, he says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Um, now this is a, another way of saying the message or the witness of the gospel has been validated within your life. And so notice the flow of this passage. Notice what he's saying overall here. If you go back to verse four, he says, I can see the grace of God within your life because it's making a difference in the way that you live your life. And now he says, all of that is evidence. All of that is testimony to the reality that the gospel has changed you. So what an amazing place for Paul to begin here, for all the problems that he's about to address. He begins by saying, listen, sure, you've got your problems, but I have no question that you're saved. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus because I can see clear evidence in your life that the gospel has transformed you. Just think of um, the baptism that we just saw. Baptism is such a, a powerful testimony to the reality of the gospel, to the reality of this transforming work that that God does within our life. It's a testimony to the reality of the work that Jesus has already accomplished within our lives. Like, and, and Julia's testimony captured that so vividly, so well. Like, we get in that water and we testify that I was once dead in my sin, far from God, not even looking for God, but then God in his mercy showed me the grace that was given to me in Christ and he rescued me from sin and judgment and now I live for him because that grace has so radically changed me in ways that I could never change myself. 
And so then we go down into the water to identify with the death of Jesus Christ in our place and for our sins. And then we stay under the water for that brief moment to identify with the burial of Jesus Christ and how my sin has been buried with him. And then we come back up out of the water to identify with the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like that moment where the resurrection declares that God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for my sins. And that when we believe in him, we are justified before God. Where Jesus takes all of our sin, we are given all of his righteousness and we are reconciled to God by faith. That is the gospel that saves. That's the gospel that changes a life. That's the gospel that changes an eternity. That's the gospel that changes a church. Such an important call for us. Such an important reminder for us and and for us as the people of this church to keep the gospel as the main thing that we proclaim. Can't help but think of, of really how so many churches across our country, so many churches all over right now who are caving into the pressures of the culture around us preaching messages that just tickle the ears of the people who come. And, and the Bible says that in the last days, that's exactly what's going to happen. Second Timothy, Paul says that to Timothy. Like, this is exactly what's going to take place. People will not endure sound teaching. They'll store up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth. Like, we look around us, and that's exactly what's happening. Just read a blog post just this week by a guy who says that one of the key ways that you're going to get new people to come to your church is by making sure that you have quality coffee to give them when they come. So, um, I read that, and I thought to myself, really? Like, seriously, that's what you're depending on for new people to come to your church? Like, like don't get me wrong, I love coffee. Like, Starbucks is like my second office. And, and coffee at church, like, come on. That's like a small slice of heaven right there. Like, that's the best of both worlds, right? But if that's what you're depending on, and, and the problem here is that there's a million different things just like that, not just for the church, but there's a million different things like that within our life that can so easily distract us. And you know what that coffee example is? It's the church version of self-help. Like, and there's so many self-help opportunities out there for whatever happens to ail you. Like, if you only just try harder or do better, or if you have this app on your phone, then maybe that's what's going to turn things around. When in reality, the only way that we're going to live a victorious Christian life, no matter what the circumstances may be, is when we live according to this book right here. Like, that's it. God has given us a playbook for life right here. And that's true for the church as well. We want to be totally committed to keeping the gospel the main thing that we proclaim and the main thing that we live. 100% totally committed all the way to speaking and to living this gospel. Living a life that oozes the aroma of Jesus in everything that we do. So that as we live a life and as we live out of our joy in the gospel and as we live out of our unity around the gospel, like that's when people at work are going to sit up and take notice. That's when your family's gonna sit up and take notice. That's when your neighbors are gonna stop and they're gonna ask you, wait a second, like I see you living your life. I see you going through those circumstances. I see you going through that difficulty and that suffering within your life and yet there's something different about you. There's something different about the way that you handle it. What is it? And it's like, boom, wide open door. You walk right through. Why? Because God's given you something to say. 
He's enriched you with all speech and all knowledge and you walk into that situation with a heart full of the gospel. That's the church that God promises to bless. That's the follower of Jesus that God pours out his favor upon. The church that keeps the gospel as the main thing, which brings us then to priority number three. Four ways the hope of the gospel impacts the life of the church. Number three, we will be grace abounding. We will be grace abounding. God just pours out his grace totally of his own will, his own desire. Gives us this grace. Notice the first part of verse seven. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. So if you go back to verse five, you've been enriched in Christ in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. And the purpose of that enrichment is so that you are not lacking in any gift. That word gift uh, comes from the same word as grace back in verse 4. comes from the same root word. And, and Paul's referring here to the spiritual gifts uh, in the church, which was, of course, one of the hot-button issues within this church. And, and, and again, though, don't miss the flow that's here in this passage because God has given you his grace in Christ, which has enriched you in every way in Christ. Therefore, as a church, you lack nothing. That's what he's saying to this Corinthian church, that, that you have everything that the Lord wants you to have at any given moment, that we as a church have everything that the Lord wants us to have at any given moment. In fact, part of what he's saying here is that the gifts that are present within the life of the church are an extension of God's grace, not just to each individual believer, but it's an extension of God's grace to the church collectively. Now, we know that God's grace doesn't stop flowing upon us at the moment that we get saved. We know that there's more to it than that. We're going to learn later in chapter 12 that the Spirit of God gives every believer at least one spiritual gift. And that gift, he says, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, he says, it's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, God continues to extend grace to you in the form of a spiritual gift or two or three that are to be used for the primary purpose, not for the sole purpose necessarily, but for the primary purpose of building up this body of Christ. Like, aren't you glad that God's grace doesn't stop flowing upon you at the moment that you're saved? Like, that's our testimony, right? Like, God's grace comes upon us in our salvation. God loves me, and Jesus died for me, and I put my faith in him, and I live the rest of my life for him. Praise God for his grace at the moment of salvation. But that grace doesn't stop coming to us after the moment of our salvation. God's grace continues to pour out upon you, upon all aspects of your life, from beginning to end. Praise God for his grace. So notice this. The church has not only been enriched in speech and knowledge, but part of what he's saying here is that the church has everything that the church needs in Jesus Christ. Part of what he's saying here is that it's, it's not that this Corinthian church has every gift that's available. It's that they have every gift that they need. Again, according to the sovereign direction of the Lord. A few key passages throughout the New Testament that talk about God gracing us with these gifts. These are uh, these are pretty significant passages when it comes to this. Notice here this connection that these gifts are expressions of God's grace. Romans 12, verse 6 says this. Paul says, having gifts that differ, here it is, according to the grace given to us. So God has poured out his grace upon us in the form of, of a gift that he gives us to use. 
He says, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here's another passage, 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Here it is, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So every one of us who are saved in Jesus Christ has a gift from God. For you, it's something that God has specifically chosen to give you. And for me, it's something that God has specifically chosen to give me. And he gives it to us according to his grace upon us. And he gives it to us so that we will use it to serve one another. Because as we serve one another then, God is glorified within the church. God is glorified within this body. This body is built up for the common good. So as a church for us right now and for every local church gathering in different places, like we are abounding in God's grace. Just think about this. Every person sitting here right now, again, saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are an, an expression of the grace of God. Like God has given you a spiritual gift to use And that is an expression of God's grace upon your life. So all across this room, all across this church in our first service as well, just an abundance of God's grace that is sitting in this room right now. And an abundance of God's grace that's going to walk out those doors in a few minutes and go out into the community and go out into the world, not just as an expression of God's grace, but now with the message of God's grace. Just think of it like this. As you serve someone else, You're an expression, um, you're an extension of God's grace to them. And as someone serves you, they are an extension, they are an expression of God's grace to you. The church that is impacted by the power of the gospel is the church that is abounding in using the grace that God has given in the ways that God intended. Which leads us then to one final priority in this passage, number four. Four ways that the hope of the gospel impacts the life of the church. Number four, we will be eternally focused. We will be eternally focused. Pick it up in the middle of verse seven. He says, as you await or as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of our hope in the gospel is that we wait for our Lord's appearing. The day when he will make all things right. Like, again, um, can't stress this enough. The gospel is, is, yes, God loves me. Jesus died for me. Faith in him. Uh, restored. Reconciled to God. Hope of eternal life. Forgiveness of sins. Yes, amen to that. Thank you, God, for that. But the gospel goes beyond that. Part of the gospel is that we still have this hope to come that is still to be realized when Christ comes back and he makes all things right and we rule and reign with him for all of eternity. That is part of the good news that we cling to as well. Verse 8 He says, who will sustain you to the end, speaking of Christ, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So notice some key words here in this verse. He will sustain us. 
That is, he will keep us firm. He will hold us fast unto the very end. So no matter the circumstances, no matter the problems, no matter the challenges, Jesus himself will strengthen and sustain us to the end. He will do that for us as a church. He will do that for you as a follower of Jesus. No matter what the issue may be, no matter what the challenge is, no matter the suffering you endure, he will sustain us to the end. Guiltless, he says, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So see the significance of that phrase. No wrinkle, no spot, no blemish. For all the stuff that we go through in this life, absolutely pure before God, dressed in the pure righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think about that. What does that mean? Listen now. Paul describes it in Colossians 1, verse 21. He says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. In other words, what he's saying there is that we were once enemies before God because of our sin. But then Jesus died to make us right with God. And in making us right with God, we now stand before God as completely and totally guiltless. All the blame and the shame of our sin has been taken by Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is strong enough to sustain us to the end in that state of innocence before God until the very end. And why is that? Why can Jesus, why can that be true of us that we stay in the state of innocence? Because it's Jesus' innocence that we have. It's the purity of Jesus. It's the righteousness of Jesus that we have. It's not our own. It's not our own effort to be better. It's not our own effort to try harder. It's not our own effort to get into the kingdom of God because of our own works. It's purely because of the finished work of Jesus. We are given his innocence, his righteousness before the Father. And then notice what Paul says next in verse 9 because this makes all the difference. This is what holds it together. Verse 9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have been called into this fellowship, he says. The word there is koinonia, a word maybe that you're a little bit familiar with. This koinonia fellowship, it means participation. It means partnership. So we have been called, Paul says, into this deeply personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So we share in his life, we share in his suffering, we share in his death, we share in his resurrection, and his life is lived through us. And it's, it's interesting to me what Paul is saying here, that if God has called us into this kind of fellowship, into this kind of partnership, which he has, if God has called us into that kind of relationship that came at the expense of his only son, then there is no way that God is going to go back on the promise that he has made to us. He is totally, 100%, fully committed to sustaining us to the very end. Why? Because God is faithful. He's faithful. Listen to how Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Verses 23 and 24, he says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body, so the entirety of who you are, may that be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so you and I live today, we live right now with the confidence in all things because God is forever faithful. 
Like part of what he's saying here is that, is that when you go through hard things in life and, and when we go through hard things together, we are in fellowship with Jesus. Like that means we are on team Jesus. And if we're on team Jesus, no matter what we may go through in this life, I really like our chances if we are on team Jesus. And I love our chances that one day the God who made this world will make everything right in this world, including us. Why? Because God is faithful. That's what it all comes back to. God is faithful. Whatever it is that you're going to go through at some point over the next seven days, whether you're expecting it or not, this is a promise that you can bank everything on. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. There's no question that the gospel impacts the life of the church in significant ways. That the gospel impacts the life of the follower of Jesus in significant ways. And and when that gospel makes the impact in our life, we will be Jesus-saturated, gospel-centered, grace-abounding, and eternally focused. Let's pray.